Welcome to Common Ground, a podcast series discussing new research and interesting projects in the field of complementary medicine. Hello, my name is Laura Christophoridis, writer and presenter at Vitally. Vitally is a digital platform, a professional health resource and a distribution service all in one. We'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the lands and pay our respects to elders past and present. Please note, this podcast is suitable for a general public audience and anyone interested in health or healthcare professionals. Today on Common Ground, I will be speaking with Lawrence Katsaris. Lawrence is a naturopath and an educator with over 18 years of experience in the natural medicine field. He's also an educator at Integria Healthcare. Welcome to Common Ground, Lawrence. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Thanks, Lawrence. Firstly, we'd love to hear about your background and how did you come into the complementary medicine field? Yeah, sure. So I I think a lot of people in this field tend to get into it because they ran into health problems themselves. Um, I'm actually not one of those. I was just exposed to it uh, from a young age. So I probably through, and well, definitely through the exposure through my family. So I guess maybe health issues through like family members discovered natural medicine and I then started seeing naturopaths and homeopaths and eating all sorts of weird and wonderful things as a child and, you know, going to all different types of practitioners. And that gave me exposure to essentially what I think is the potential for the, the human being system and the way that natural medicine has a phenomenal ability to be able to help to tap into that to help people overcome what might be hurdles and challenges on multiple levels. And, you know, we would see that as disease, you know, whether that's psychological, um, physiological, like physically, uh, and then through different aspects of that, that being as well. And so I started to see how really natural medicine actually gives you a profound ability to work in what we would call the subclinical space, mm. which is that space where if you were to see a doctor, they would say everything's fine, yeah. but people don't feel well. And I know that yourself and the rest of us practitioners, this tends to be a lot of the people that we might see. Mind you, these days we tend to see people that are just frankly very sick, but mm. uh, orthodox medicine maybe doesn't have answers for as well. But there's a lot of people that aren't feeling well that just don't have answers. Blood tests say they're fine. You can't see overt disease processes. And what I was observing through all my life was just the way that natural medicine had a fantastic ability to be able to bring people back into balance by relieving the hurdles, the health challenges that were there. And it does that, I think, because it doesn't look for treating diseases. It looks for treating people. And so I started to get interested in the potential that the, we have as human beings because I think there's a profound potential that we have that we don't tap into on multiple different levels. And to do that, the first step is to actually become quite healthy and then you can kind of move into the optimal fields from there. And natural medicine had a really cool way of doing that. So I just I got interested in it and pursued um, studies in that, which took me into working in clinic and doing that in Australia and overseas and and eventually that led me to working in roles in education and in support for practitioners, which I really have enjoyed doing since then because it basically gives us an ability, uh, I can kind of vicariously help. You know, it's like you can, I can help one person or you can teach one practitioner or support one practitioner and it has a, a, an immense ripple effect 
from there. And I like education. I like the ability to help to break down topics. And so it actually tapped into something that I didn't realize was a passion of mine. And especially within this industry, having been exposed to it for so long, I have seen a lot of charlatans. I've seen a lot of misinformation. I've seen a lot of uh, the airy fairiness and the the aspects of the industry that have been criticised and, you know, probably rightly, fairly so. But I've also seen the amazing benefits that can come from natural medicine. And so I like working to help to communicate tangible uh, takeaways that people can practically use so that essentially I think as as a practitioner, you're an educator, you're helping people understand their own health and helping to develop their own sense of health and orientation towards that and educating practitioners is helping practitioners understand how to to be doing the same for their practice and for their patients basically so what i do now is i really like to break down misnomers and the misinformation that exists within the industry because there is some of that and that's sort of where some of the industry gets criticized for and to really help patients and clients of mine and practitioners understand what's the best way forward based on the science, based on the tradition, based on the art, so that people can get the best health outcomes Mm. to achieve their health goals. Mm, Phenomenal. And Lawrence, how does the education and the science, how does that translate into the practical world, both for practitioners and for patients? Really good question. Like I think that I have a very pragmatic sense in education and I think that ultimately it's important to be keeping in mind that what you're learning needs to be applicable when the rubber hits the road, uh, ultimately, I guess, as they say. So there's no point talking about things from an intellectual perspective and saying, oh, this is interesting and the science says this and that, where the needs to be relevant to real life. So this looks like from a variety of different, you would say that there's an importance of using human clinical trials versus cell line models, because is that really representative of what's happening in a cell to what's actually going to happen in a living? Just the same as there's no point saying that this particular diet is fantastic and it can achieve these really great results if it's not going to be achievable for people. If it's a diet that's going to have them cooking weird and wonderful food every 20 minutes of the day or doing some really weird lifestyle practices that the average individual is not going to be able to follow. Mm. So education needs to be realistic. It needs to be embedded in what's actually relevant for people to be where they're at and be able to be approachable and applicable. Mm, Absolutely. And how have you seen the research transition over the years, especially in terms of – the applicability to herbal medicine? It's certainly changed. I mean, over decades, over the last couple of decades, say if we would just even take the last two decades, you see a huge uptake in research in natural medicines. Mm. And there's always these graphs that you'll see from PubMed, which is the main leading search engine or a very common search engine that people would use to get scientific papers, um, if some people aren't familiar with that. And you'll see these graphs of, you know, there was 10 papers published a year, then, you know, 
11, 15, 20 papers published a year, and then it's jumped up to like 100 papers published a year, you know, thousands of papers published a year on particular herbal or nutritional ingredients, and it just goes through this skyrocketing uh, because people are recognising the value in natural medicine. So there's certainly been a lot more investment in research. Research has also, for better and for worse, changed some of the industry as well. I know that going through my trainings, it was very much based a lot more on the traditional and then I was in the cusp of seeing the changeover of where people were teaching you from a traditional aspect to more of a scientifically validated aspect. And that certainly had pros and cons because you see that the science is necessary to validate just exactly how powerful and how real what natural medicine can do. However, you got to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And sometimes what's happened is that we've moved a little bit so far that unless it can be completely scientifically validated and quantified, it hasn't been retained. Mm. And so some of the history, some of the traditions uh, that helped make natural medicine, especially from a naturopathic aspect, uh, be what it is, have been uh, lost. Now, if you're a skeptic and you're listening to that, you would say that that's fine because if it can't be scientifically validated, then what's the point? Mm. However, we have also seen over times where science has over certainly over decades been able to prove, certainly with herbs, for instance, just how powerful a herb could work on multiple systems where we have the understanding of physiology, you know, several years ago to be able to, to prove that. Mm. So... I think that it's important to maintain the tradition and in the art. And other professions have been able to do this over the years. I think Chinese medicine is a great one or a decent example, maybe to some degree, that's been able to, to demonstrate that. However, science still can't explain and you know quantify necessarily what she is, even though it might try. Mm. But in answer, I guess, to your question, I've seen the science change in terms of increase in volume, supporting validation that helps with recognition, that certainly helped with acceptance. Yeah. 10, 15 years ago, many people wouldn't know what a naturopath was. Now everyone seems to have seen one. Yeah. Um, and the science is helping, I think, drive the industry forward. We just need to make sure that we keep the tradition involved Absolutely. in that science as well and understand the roots and don't just, I guess, throw the baby out of the bathwater. Exactly. And speaking of herbal medicine, what are some of the key considerations that practitioners and members of the public are best to look out for? when picking a quality liquid herb or tablet? Really good question. There's a lot of considerations. So first and foremost, I think it's really, really important that uh, members of the public, when you're looking for supplements, are using high-quality supplements that come from a reputable manufacturer. So an easy way to check with that is that is it made by TGA? Uh, does it meet the TGA regulations? So... The, in Australia, we have the TGA, which is a governing body for the manufacturing of medicines. It's one of the, the most, if not the most respected bodies throughout the world. And we have very strict quality assurance measures. So there's a lot of uh, practices that must be followed, known as um, GMP or good manufacturing practices, that must be followed so that uh, products comply with this. So this applies for pharmaceuticals and it applies for supplements. What I see too often is that a lot of people may say, I've got this, I mean, mushrooms, Chinese mushrooms are probably a common one now. I've got this really great mushroom extract that I bought from the person down the markets. Now, they're not going to be manufactured to the same qualities. And we can talk about some of those processes and procedures that need to um, comply. Yeah. 
Now, an easy way, there's also a spectrum, like just like with any product, you get what you pay for. So while all things might comply with GMP and might meet TGA requirements, there's also then above and beyond that that you can go uh, to make really good quality products. So I tend to recommend, and mean being a practitioner, I tend to recommend that people go with good quality products that are recommended by a practitioner. Because as practitioners, as you know, we have ability to prescribe products that are beyond what would be available if you were to walk into the health food store or to the supermarket or to the pharmacy. And the advantage of that is that they're prescribed for you, not just a random product that's off the shelf because your health condition, like the individual's health condition, is unique to them. And just because it worked for your sister or your friend or someone else doesn't mean that product will work for you. So Australian-made products that comply with TGA requirements that are prescribed by a practitioner would be my recommendation. Mm. And Lawrence, are, are all herbs grown in Australia? No, unfortunately not. Uh, as much as it would be nice to have everything Australian grown, like the products would be made in Australia, but say, for instance, like herbal manufacturers would make products that would source ingredients from overseas. Mm. And this is a question that a lot of people might think is, why? Why don't you just grow everything from Australia? And we have a particular climate in Australia. You can't grow everything in Australia. When you grow the growing conditions for herbs hugely influence the therapeutic actives within a herb, mm. known as the constituents. And we don't have all of the correct environments or we don't have growers that are able to utilise those environments to grow all unique herbs. So, for instance, there's herbs that need to grow, like um, to give a specific, like golden seal is one particular herb that needs to grow in very cold, harsh climates. Mm. And it, it grows in the snow typically where that cold environment helps it for particular constituents um, within the herb. Uh, the hydrastin. Now, it actually also takes several years for that hydrastin to take place. Like you can't plant it and harvest it next year. Mm. And that hydrastin is the constituent that helps as a trophorestorative. So it helps to heal our mucous membranes. Now, someone may be able to do that in Tasmania, might be cold enough potentially, but probably still not. Mm. Uh, but there's not particularly growers that are doing that that have been established for years. Mm. And then there's also with golden seals, other considerations of sustainability that we can probably talk about later. Mm. So we need to consider the environment, the climate, the growers. How long have these people been growing these herbs for? Um, do they know what they're doing? And also the supply chain. When you're supplying a herbal product you are going to need that all year round where you might only harvest that herb in a particular season so if it gets harvested in summer an australian supplier if you were only growing it in australia you'd harvest it and then maybe by mid-year we might be running out of that herb what, what are you going to do then so it's like you need to be sourcing sometimes from north and south hemisphere right. so you've got constant supply mm. ah, interesting and why is quality manufacturing practices so important? Well, because of, I guess like I was touching on there, you need to be making sure that when you're prescribing a herb or, I mean, prescribing any product, that you've got what you think is in there. So if you are an individual that's taking that supplement, there's no point in you taking a supplement 
thinking that it's got X and Y ingredients on the label, but they're actually not in there at the amounts that you think they are. Mm. And when it comes to herbs, there's a lot more nuances in that. Just like we were saying about the active ingredients, the constituents, you need to be making sure that that herb is identified first and foremost as that particular herb. Mm. What we see is that there's suppliers all over the world. And with the growth of the natural medicine industry that we were talking about before, we see that a lot of people are wanting to cash in on that. So you've got a lot of suppliers from countries around the world that are wanting to offer herbs to people to make products with. And if you do not do your own testing, Mm. which is not necessarily a requirement. So I, for instance, let's just say that you and I are making a, a herbal product. We could buy from a supplier over in the other side of the world, we don't necessarily have to test that they say that, okay, we're selling you chamomile. We could say, okay, great, it's chamomile. We could put it in our product. We believe them and we put it in the product. However, we are better to, to do our own testing on it and make sure that they've said it, it's chamomile. Is it the correct species of chamomile we want to produce the particular actions? That's not a requirement to have to be doing um, in Australia, but it is something that manufacturers do because we see this a lot that you will buy in a supply of a herb and it will be a different species Mm. or it will be adulterated and this is common where what you might do is you might mix in some of that herb with another herb or another compound so that it makes it look similar but it's cheaper for the supplier to sell so you get this adulteration of the product and that can be problematic and we've seen problems with this throughout the years which is where people have maybe had reactions to herbal products because that product was adulterated it wasn't the herb that was supposed to be in the product it was a combination of that herb and something else that's commonly adulterated passed off as that herb but then maybe is potentially toxic or has problems Mm. so like if we go back to chamomile for instance german chamomile is the most like i would say one of the the best therapeutic versions of chamomile and it commonly gets swapped in for roman chamomile right now the reason why german chamomile is so important is it because it contains this constituent, alpha bisabolol. Mm-hmm. Now, that is actually really important for producing the anti-inflammatory actions of chamomile. Right. Okay. So if you're a herbalist, you might prescribe chamomile to help with someone's inflammation of the digestive system, so in cases such as IBS. However, if you're getting chamomile from a manufacturer that hasn't done independent testing, they may have Roman chamomile, which may still produce some nervine actions and calming actions, but it won't contain high amounts of alpha bisabolol, so it won't have high anti-inflammatory therapeutic activity. Mm. So then you'll be prescribing that and you're not getting the actions from it. Mm. You need to be making sure that as a practitioner, what you're prescribing is what you think you're prescribing, and as a patient, that what you think you're getting is what you're getting and putting in your body, Mm. if that makes sense. Absolutely. And how are active ingredients and herbs identified and how are their levels measured? So it's done through a variety of different processes, but the main one is what's known as HPLC, mm-hmm. which is stands for high-performance liquid chromatography. Now, that's a machine, it's, a, it's an analysis method that you basically will go through and you will identify, you'll separate out and analyse and quantify compounds or constituents within um a substance so it what it gives you is this like spiky looking graph 
And, you know, you might think for, for those listening, it kind of looks like, but not really, if you looked at like someone's heartbeat on, on an ECG oh, or something, yeah. you know, kind of has all these peaks and troughs in it. Now that essentially looks like the fingerprint of a herb. And you should see certain peaks in particular areas and maybe certain troughs in particular areas because what those peaks are is that they are higher levels of a particular compound that will be found in that agent, like in that in that herb. And then what you do is there's standards, like a blueprint that is used, that you will then overlay that to make sure that the peaks and the troughs are in the right area. That's then where you can start to see that this, like results from HPLC for that herb match up to what should be expected and in herbs where there's common adulteration what the chemist the biochemist will see is that there's common like maybe the peak is too high or maybe there's a peak that shouldn't be there which is indicating the presence of a compound that shouldn't actually ever be present in that particular herb so you use hplc to identify the herb and the correct species of that herb and the constituents within that herb. And you then make sure that it's of the right quality because you might see that talking about chamomile, for instance, or we talked about um, golden seal and the hydrastin levels, you might see that there's peaks there, but the hydrastin of the golden seal isn't as high as what you would like or the alpha-bisabolol of the chamomile isn't as high as what you might like. And there's constituents through all the herbs, which is why we're using them. And so that's then where you might say, okay, it is the herb, it's the species that we want, but it's not of the quality that we want. It doesn't match the levels that we want for therapeutic activity. And so good quality herbal manufacturers, like in a MediHerb, would then reject mm. that herb and say, this isn't what you said it is, this doesn't meet our quality standards, and you know, not make supplements with that compound, with that herb in it. And what influences the levels of these active constituents in herbs? So a lot of it is growing conditions. Mm-hmm. So um, mo- like essentially like climate, it'll be the conditions, it might be the altitude, it might be, as I mentioned with golden seal, it might be the time, like certain herbs need to reach a maturity level until they're going to start to produce that compound. You've got herbs that need to be grown at a particular altitude because like that, in growing anything else, you will see that it changes the profile. If it's grown when it's planted, when it's harvested, all of these standard like horticultural and harvesting methods would help influence what's actually present within the herd. I mean, this is maybe not the best example to give because we're talking about health, but if someone's listening to this, and they appreciate wine, it might be a similar comparison. We appreciate that where you plant particular grapes influences what happens in those grapes and influences the flavour of what's going on in the wine. It's, you know, somewhat similar to what's going to be taking place within herbs. Um, I'm sure it's the same. Well, I know it's the same if, if you're planting um, fruits and vegetables, you know, if you're reusing soil, for instance, where that was used, it's going to change the minerals that are available, etc. So all, all of this, as well as the soil quality, comes into consideration of making constituents within those herbs and the quality of the herbs. And last and certainly not least, all of that is collectively uh, assessed, I guess, basically grouped up with the knowledge and the experience of the grower. You know, like some one person will know the right time to plant and harvest, et cetera, 
versus someone if it's brand new may understand the foundations in it but may not know the full art in it as well. Mm, Absolutely. And is it important to consider the energetic properties of herbs? Definitely. I mean, uh, that's something that, again, is probably touching on being a little out there for some and certainly not necessarily being able to be validated by science that well, although there is some science to, to prove it. We start to touch on that in terms of harvesting methods, in terms of the you know when it was planted, when it was harvested. Yeah. But I think that if we look at it from a perspective outside of Western herbal medicine, we see that in the East, like certainly within Ayurveda and within Chinese medicine, they have been practicing according to the energetics of herbs for thousands and thousands of years Mm. and understanding how this influences the energetics of the individuals being prescribed to. So for a simple example, some herbs might be heating. So ginger is a really good example of this. And people know this. If you eat ginger, you'll feel your body heat up. If you're taking ginger extract, you'll feel it, you know, heat the body up. That has certain therm- like thermal qualities and therapeutic properties to it. Uh, that then also applies to uh, the nature of a variety of herbs. Like basically all herbs will have their own in- energetics to it, which you're trying to look at supporting when providing and prescribing to the individual. What's the, indivi- what's the energetics of the individual and what are we trying to do with that? Because we aren't simply just a, a physical machine. And so the cells are producing energetic qualities, which we, we can, you know, we can go down rabbit holes and talk about the biochemistry of that for a while. But essentially, let's just leave it at that there's energetic qualities of that cell that's producing energy. And we could name that as ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is the energy that our bodies and like cells work off. And that then also produces other energetic qualities. Now, when it comes to particular herbs, what's fascinating is that traditionally growers have been understanding this for years and years, and this is some of how herbal medicine was practised, you know, thousands of years ago and generations ago. We see this probably something that's worth mentioning, talking about where we just came from and energetics, is that something like cat's claw is a herb that's grown in, has to be grown in a particular region of the world, Mm. And has particular energetics. And for that, some, what is cat's claw, Lawrence? Okay, okay, good point. So cat's claw, cat's claw is a herb that is used. It has great immune stimulating properties. It has antiviral properties, and it gets used in a lot of different situations. From whether that might be uh, yeah. like its viral antiviral activities are great, but I think probably where it has its best actions is in its immune stimulating actions. Mm. So in people with compromised, low immunity, and Pathacor is a vine that kind of grows um, within the Amazon, uh, within Peru, and it needs to grow at a particular altitude to produce a particular constituent that has those immune-stimulating actions. Right. Now, if it's grown at a lesser altitude, it doesn't contain the same uh, properties. It doesn't contain the same constituents. Mm. Now, that makes sense, and that's, you know, that's, that's fine, but fascinating about cat's claw is the fact that it actually has like botanically you can look at um different chemotypes so uh chemotype is basically a different version of that kind of herb same but different uh they will look identical one will have the levels of the chemotype that you need which is um the acronym is poa and one won't it will have high amounts of toa right. and that 
TOAs are actually compromising to the immune system. POAs oh. stimulate the immune system. Right. Thing is, Laura, you and I could look at this, two of these herbs and then look exactly the same. Botanically, they're identical. You can't like you can't identify them without putting them under HPLC, and you'll see which chemotype it is at the cat's claw. However, this has been used for you know generations and generations by uh, local. Peruvian tribes, the Ashaninka tribes in the Amazon, mm. and it was used by the shamans, like, you know, their higher-level healers. They'd use it for helping, you know, for higher-level kind of states, helping that individual for real sick states, I believe, into connecting with that individual's, like, spirit. They are able to look at the herb and identify it. They're able to know which is the correct chemotype that has high levels of POAs and which is the incorrect chemotype, even though there is no botanical difference. Because these people have been trained for generations and generations and, you know, essentially developed skills to be able to identify that. And I spent a small period of time in the Amazon with some shamans and, and herbalists and like to put this in a simple way that is something that's tangible that people can take away. Their ability to be able to, like their heightened senses is profound. Mm. Like their ability to be able to, when you're walking through uh, the Amazon, you're walking through dense jungle and their ability to be able to smell something that mm. you, know, you have no idea about, you can't even smell that, and be able to walk over and, and orientate to exactly where that herb is or where that animal is, is huge. Mm. Like it's because they've spent their lives honing those skills and it's been passed down from generation to generation. And I think the thing that we need to appreciate from the West is that like you and by doing a weekend course, like this isn't yeah. something that we can like share. It's probably, it's a skill that you could develop and cultivate over yeah. you know, many, many years. Um, but people like we're talking about higher level um, sensory abilities, I suppose. That's something that needs to be cultivated like any particular skill. And the yes. example I always give is it's not that dissimilar to seeing a tennis player or a football player. Mm. I might be able to watch it and think that looks cool. doesn't mean I can walk away and do that the next day. <laughs> doesn't mean I can train it for a week and do it. Yeah. Like you'd need to develop the skills and that's no different to various other skills that people have. Mm. And so getting back to my point is that the Ashaninka and shamans were able to identify herbs and we work with those individuals that then harvest those herbs, bring it down, and then sell the product. Where if you're not working in conjunction with locals that have this connection to the herb, that understand necessarily the growing conditions, etc., it's very easy for people to get the wrong herb or very easy for them to get the wrong chemotype or herb that isn't got high amounts of the constituents which is why it's so important to follow traditional practices, work with the locals when uh, obtaining sources of herbs because you're getting what you can then validate through science mm. of higher quality ingredients. Mm. Fascinating. Such a fascinating and a beautiful blend of the, like you said, that, that Western and also that traditional understanding of the herbs as well, which I think, yeah, you just can't lose that. It's too important. Definitely, definitely, definitely. I mean, that's where the art came from. And I think that herbal medicine is an art as much as it is a science. Absolutely. And, yeah, we need to be careful to maintain both. Definitely, definitely. And, Lawrence, this brings me to sustainability. How are sustainability issues addressed? Yeah, that's really important. When it comes to herbs, like we're aware – you know, I think sustainability across 
all industries is critically important. And like I think as herbalists, we're really attuned to that. And so when we're getting herbs, we want to be making sure that we're not robbing Peter to pay Paul. And so you want to be making sure that you're sourcing from a country where that herbal species isn't threatened Mm. because some herbs may grow natively in one country and there may be an abundance and it's not in the other. You want to be making sure that if a species that is threatened globally and it's being sourced, that you use cultivated sources. So you're using sources that are grown instead of, you know, you know that are just you know, wildly abundant because then you, you kind of, you're, you're helping to cap the amount that you're using there. If cultivated sources don't exist, so there might be situations, and we've certainly had this uh, in Mediherb where, there's not cultivated sources there you because you've got good relationships with growers that have been you know, built over you know, tens of years mm. you'll be aware of where the levels are of particular herbs and say well hang on we're going to run into a problem in five seven ten years yeah. what are we doing proactively to be making sure that we're avoiding that so that we don't just deplete the sources and then all of a sudden we find out that now we've got a threatened species so in those situations, you start working with growers to proactively start up cultivated sources so that you can avoid that situation. Um, and if you're not, uh, that's not available, then you start working with harvesters to look at setting up wild crafting and pr- uh, establishing protocols for mm. that that might be so that it is sustainable. You don't just go and harvest everything out of um the native lands and then find out again oh geez we've ended up in a depleted situation mm-hmm. but you want to be basically working as proactively as possible and providing education and sustainable alternatives mm-hmm. so i talked about golden seal and not that it's the herb of the day but it's probably an easy example for this is that golden seal is on the um the cites list which is um, for those that aren't aware is a, a threatened species list and so it's a herb that often gets used because it contains a constituent berberine, which is a strong antimicrobial, and it contains a constituent that I talked about before, hydrastum, which is great for honifying the mucous membranes and supporting that. So you might use it for sinus infections or genitourinary conditions or something like that. Now, if someone's using golden seal just because they want berberine, there's better herbs to use that contain berberine that aren't threatened. And if someone's using it because they need hydrastin, then okay, that would be the time that you might use golden seal. But you want to be making sure that the golden seal is sourced from sustainable practices so that you're not depleting those. So, you know, cultivated practices or, you know, wild harvested practices that are applying to uh, adhering to particular protocols. But from a practitioner perspective, and certainly from, you know, I guess what I do is an education perspective from one practitioner to the other is educating around things like that yes. so that people don't just think, oh, well, I always use Herb X for this reason, mm. I'll use that. It's like, well, hang on, are you aware that that's threatened? Are you aware that you can't obtain cat's claw unless it's sourced in this particular way? It's not going to have the particular actions that you're looking for. Um, are you aware that, you know, carb is a good example, that if you get it from this particular island, it gives people a groggy hangover for days. Mm. If you get it from this particular region, it doesn't. So as practitioners, we need to know that and prescribe it accordingly and educate our clients on that because that's there where people get the misunderstanding. Just the same as a lot of people might be reactive to chamomile. We talked about Roman chamomile tends to be the one that causes the reactions. 
German chamomile doesn't, but often they're interchanged in products and teas and things like that. So people might think I'm allergic to chamomile. And I say, well, hang on a second, maybe the Roman, you know, maybe you just have a preference for the German, which is a bad joke. But, <laughs> you know, you need to be aware of wh- where you're getting your herbs from and following those sustainable practices. And then last but not least, when something's listed on CITES and it's, so it's on this threatened species list and there's no cultivation sources available, then that's where manufacturers need to be doing the right thing and ceasing supply. Yeah, absolutely. And saying, well, unfortunately, as much as we might love that herb, we like it's not ethical, it's not the right thing to do for the world to continue to, to read that. Let's try to set up cultivated sources and maybe we can use it in the future, yes. but let's not use it now. Exactly. And we have so many beautiful alternatives. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, there's a, we've got a lot of in the spectrum of options. I mean, sure, there are some herbs. We, you know, it's just oh, that one herb is so good, but it's not, it's not right to be depleting the world Absolutely. to be like it, you we're really it goes against the sheer nature of ultimately what we're doing definitely couldn't agree more well Lawrence thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation I've really enjoyed having you on today well thanks Laura it's been great chatting yeah thanks for having me and thanks for tuning in today feel free to leave us a review we'd love to hear from you thank you 